um, that's that's been really nice to me to know that we're providing something to the community that's allowing people to have more flexibility that improves their quality of life. Hello and welcome. You are listening to episode 167 of the Community Broadband Bits podcast from the Institute for Local Self-Reliance. This is Lisa Gonzalez. Sandy, Oregon, in the shadow of Mount Hood and 30 miles from Portland, is one of the stars of our new video about its fiber network SandyNet. Two other stars are Chris's guests this week, City Council President Jeremy Pietzold and IT Director and SandyNet General Director Joe Knapp. Sandy is offering gigabit connectivity to both residents and businesses for an incredible $60, even beating out Google Fiber in Kansas City for affordability. People in Sandy are taking advantage of this new publicly owned asset, switching over at take rates much higher than anticipated. In this interview, we hear Jeremy and Joe describe how the network is improving life in Sandy, and they elaborate on the strategy the community took to its fiber deployment. Sandy, with no electric utility, took an incremental approach. Our guests offer advice for other communities who may find themselves considering a similar tactic. Be sure to check out our video, produced in cooperation with Next Century Cities, at the Sandy tag at muninetworks.org. Now here is Chris talking with Jeremy Pietzold and Joe Knapp. Welcome to another edition of the Community Broadband Bits podcast. I'm Chris Mitchell. Today I'm talking with Jeremy Pietzold, the City Council President of Sandy, Oregon. Welcome to the show. Hey, thank you. And we also have Joe Knapp, the IT Director and SandyNet General Manager. Welcome to the show. Thanks, Chris. It's good to be here. I'm glad to have you guys on the show. Uh, you know, we've been talking for a lot of years, and in fact, uh, Joe, I know we've had you on in the past, and Jeremy, I think we've did we have you on? Yeah, I thought so. Yeah, I've yeah. Been on with that. right. Um, and and I'm just very excited because we've released this video. The two of you are now rock stars on YouTube, as far as I'm concerned. Um, and uh, you've got this great network that is uh, just uh, coming into the the finishing gates here in terms of uh, the initial deployment. So, um, can you just briefly, uh, Jeremy, give us a little background on Sandy? Sandy is a town that just celebrated its uh, 100th year as being a uh, municipality. It's about 11, 12 years ago, uh, the city uh, tried to uh, get uh, broadband internet, actually DSL, at City Hall, and they weren't able to do so. It wasn't available. And so the outcome of that was that the city council decided to become a municipal ISP with the idea of uh, if we couldn't get DSL at City Hall, our residents uh, would be frustrated without being able to get broadband at their homes. And so um, we we started that service with um, DSL, and uh, and then transitioned into a wireless ISP, and then now transitioning into fiber. And we have this great video that the two of you are in that uh, that we in Next Century Cities put together. Of course, Sandy being uh, one of the charter members, the original members of Next Century Cities, um, that discovers uh, discusses a lot of that history. Um, Joe, can you remind me when you became involved with SandyNet? I was hired by the city uh, in July of 2007, so I've been here just over eight years now. When I came on with the city, it was really when we were starting to transition, as Jeremy mentioned, from DSL to wireless. So um, I managed the deployment of the citywide Wi-Fi network, and then kind of in the midst of that, also began exploring uh, the fiber optic network that we were seeking to build and then obviously have managed that project as we've gone through it. 
And now, Joe, I think you were the first real IT person that they brought on. Before that, you had this adventurous city manager who would would climb the poles and climb up on the rooftops for the wireless, right? Correct, yeah. So we had our city manager did a lot of troubleshooting and, and tech support, and then we had uh, an intern that was a high school student that, that worked as an intern for the city for a few years that did a lot of that as well. And, you know, that that worked well when the utility was very small. When I came on to the city, um, we only had about 175 customers. So it was a very, very small niche thing that was happening. Um, and then once the once the Wi-Fi network was really built out is when we really started to blow up. And, and by the time we had that Wi-Fi network completely um, deployed, we had around 1,300 customers inside the city limits and another 200 outside the city limits on a different system. And now, Jeremy, I think one of the really interesting parts of SandyNet has been this incremental strategy of growth. And I'm just curious, as an elected official, you know, what 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 are you thinking about when you're sort of deciding to take another incremental step? And how does that differ from deciding to take, uh, you know, the step of going citywide all at once, which you ultimately did with the fiber network? Joe was mentioning about um, when he started, it was uh, six months before that is when I got on city council, I was really focused on like, let's take this next step. Like we, you know, the city manager is kind of doing tech support. We have a high school intern doing tech support um, for us and helping us. And uh, let's make that next step and improve what we have and make uh, and expand it. You know, we only had a few hundred people on it and uh, we wanted to you know, get the entire city on it. Uh, we did grow up very slowly um, in different sections. So when we started the Wi-Fi, it wasn't across the entire city at the time because we just had a little bit of money. I think that's what um, we um, – I had a conversation with the city manager at the time, and he shared with me, you know, we look at other cities that had provided free Wi-Fi because we had contemplated that. Let's just provide free Wi-Fi in the parks and – in these areas, and he says, well, look at other cities. There's not a way to sustain that. And so we're looking at that and going, you know, you're right. We we, want to be sustainable, and uh, we don't want to take off too much uh, at one time because we had seen that happen before and and seen a lot of uh, places where it didn't work out. Um, And then they've got kind of this uh, black eye uh, for even trying. Um, and so we were able to slow, slowly grow it year after year. Um, and then it came to a point of when we got to deploying fiber, you know, we had um, 1,500 wireless customers in our city. So, and we completely covered our entire city. Uh, so we had everyone in our city participating. Um, and then we decided as politically, how can I go and say, this side of town, let's try it over here um, and see if it works and not, and we'll give you guys uh, gig fiber, but the other side of town, you only get five megs of wireless. That didn't seem politically fair, and you know, I, I do like being reelected. So we um, we were able to uh, figure out um, a way, but we didn't do it right away. We had to wait and figure out the financial aspects of it to be able to say, you know what, it's financially also cheaper for us to do the uh, entire city at one time uh, for deploying the fiber. I think that's actually a really good point because I talk often about some of the benefits of the incremental strategy, but you're absolutely right in terms of it's a political question of of how to pick the first neighborhoods, and that that can be very um, challenging, and it can be certainly very divisive in ways that uh, I certainly understand elected officials would like to avoid. 
I'd like to point out also, Chris, when we did deploy the fiber, uh, uh, Joe had divided up the city into four quadrants um, for construction purposes. You know, you got to start somewhere. And we built the entire thing in a year. I mean, really crazy fast was what um, others might say in one year. But in that year, you had people that already had it. And it was politically uh, challenging too. Um, you know, people are like, well, why aren't you in my neighborhood over here? We'll, we'll be there, don't worry. And that was just a one year span. And that was just because of construction. I mean, you can only have so many boots on the ground working at a time. Um, and yet one year um, showed the, um, the kind of the political stress or the stress in the fact that, hey, why does that community, that section of town have it and my, town, my side doesn't? I have to wait. Now, I think there's, it's worth making sure people are on the same page and understanding that, that you're a city of 10,000 people, uh, you do not have an electric utility, um, and that uh, you're located uh, between uh, the stunningly beautiful Mount Hood and Portland, Oregon, um, and you've got some great vistas there. So you've got a lot of people that are constantly coming through town, and it's a desirable place to live. Um, but Joe, I, I want to get back to, I think, how a town without a municipal electric utility does this. Uh, you know, there's this common wisdom that it's, that it's all but impossible. Um, can you give us a, a, some suggestion of, of how you've made it work? So the key for us is that we had an existing municipal utility, specifically a municipal internet service utility, um, to make this project successful in my mind. And we've had a lot of cities uh, reaching out to us now asking that, that very question, how did you do this and how can we replicate it? And I hesitate to just say run out and build a network because the way that we modeled this to, to make sure that we were going to be okay um, was based off of our existing penetration of wireless subscribers. So we knew, look, we've got 30% of the community already on SandyNet. They already have our Wi-Fi service and we're simply going to be upgrading them um, to this fiber service. And that, that existing customer base almost got us to where we needed to be financially to make the model work for fiber. So the big risk was, will any of those customers cancel service because the rates are going to go up? So they were paying $25 a month, and now they're paying $40 or $39.95 specifically. And they're getting a 100 megabit symmetrical connection for that $40 a month, right? Correct, yes, instead of five megs down and one meg up. So it was a you know, technologically vast leap in performance, um, but it was still, you know, it's 15 bucks a month, and how, is, how are people going to respond to that? Um, interestingly, to date, I have, we have had no cancellations because of the price increase. And what we did, um, just kind of a side note too, is, is for our existing customers, it was a free upgrade, free installation of the router, um, basically no cost up front for them to switch to fiber. And then we held their Wi-Fi rate for three months. So they basically got to try the fiber service at no financial impact for three months. And then we adjust their rate up to the 39.95 uh, per month for the 100 megs. Or if they choose to go with the gigabit service, it's 59.95 per month. And so far we've had no one cancel because of that rate increase because the fiber performs so well. But you know, back to your question, my, the, I think that key for success for us was that we had this existing customer base, we were able to model and say, well, we're pretty sure we're going to be able to get this many customers, and you know, what's that going to look like with revenues and costs, et cetera. Um, so we felt pretty confident going into it that, that we were going to be able to make a successful run at it. I think the key for other cities that are looking to do this, I think it's definitely doable, but you'd want to have really good metrics from your community on um, 
how interested they are in this type of service. And what we found is that people were very interested. And you know, as I mentioned before, we have approximately 60% of the community has requested service. We have a little over 1,500 customers connected and active on the network right now. And we've got another 500 uh, houses that have fiber on the side of the house that we've yet to connect just because we haven't had time to get installers in there. So we're still working through that. But what that amounts to basically is we took an extra 30% of the market. So we had 30% of the community on our Wi-Fi service, and then that, that grew to nearly 60% when we installed Fiber. So to me, that was a very interesting, very interesting metric to say we captured you know, a third of the market nearly from the competition and switched them over just by introducing a Fiber service. And Jeremy, I'm curious, you and I have talked recently about your new business pricing approach. Um, could you outline that for us briefly? And, and, and I'm curious if you're seeing more interest from businesses now that you have what I think are probably the best prices in the nation for uh, business access. The uh, SandyNet board, um, as well as the city council, um, agreed that they were going to keep the same pricing as what we offer residential. So that means a business, um, whether you're a coffee shop um, or a small office building or a larger office building, we would have 39.95 for 100 megs up and down and 59.95 for a gig to your business. And so the, the, um, the kind of the debate and what was being talked about at council at the time of making those uh, determinations were, we're trying to be more business friendly and why would we want to just raise the price because they were a business versus being a residential user? And we also offer an enterprise type of a service you know, that would be you know, dedicated um, service that you may see for a high-end office building or something that wanted uh, something you know, with uh, more than what they offer with just a, a gig on a pond system. What you're doing is you're extending a residential type service to the businesses, and that's a incredibly high level service. Um, there's some oversubscribing, but people are generally getting the speeds that they're paying for. Um, but some businesses want a dedicated circuit where they know that no one else is going to be sharing traffic with them, and that's the enterprise type service that you're talking about. That often does come with a higher price, right? Right. It would have a higher SLA um, on it as well. And um, you know a more dedicated uh, hardware and that type of thing for them, but you know going back to um, the businesses, we had a lot of the businesses on our wireless system still. The labor that it takes to maintain a wireless ISP um, is a lot higher than to maintain a in the ground fiber system, um, and so you know we will see a lot more stable connections on the fiber system and a lot less uh, overhead once the system is put in place than uh, we would for the wireless system throughout town. And so we decided if you're an existing customer on SandyNet on wireless in the business district, we will just move you over uh, to uh, the fiber for free. If you um, are new or wanting the service, then we'll have a $350 installation cost uh, to put in uh, to get you hooked up to the uh, the fiber, um, and then the same monthly rates apply. So, and there's still no contracts; it's just month to month as they want to go, and uh, there's still no bandwidth caps. 
And I think part of the way that you're able to make that pencil out financially is by uh, doing some of the work as part of uh, uh, what's commonly called the tax increment financing district. But I think you've, you told me there's a name for it specifically in Oregon that I've forgotten. Uh, the Urban Renewal District. Right, Urban Renewal District. So we do have an urban renewal district, and, and that's where this, uh, which is our business district. Um, and in that, we freeze the the tax base, um, and then as the um, year after year, as the uh, increase of the property taxes go up, that uh, differential then gets put into a fund, the urban renewal district fund, then can only be spent um, with inside that urban renewal district to help increase the economic value of that district. Um, and so I pitched the case uh, saying, hey, we've been using this for facade programs, street lights, um, and these type of things. And we had in the budget for a new uh, stoplight, which was not popular in town <laughs> uh, because of being on Highway 26 and having a lot of uh, skiers um, and vacationers going through our town. In their cars. <laughs> in their cars, yeah, uh, backing up. So we decided to um, repurpose that money um, and in doing so uh, lobbied for, hey, what this is a great avenue that we could give back to the business um, owners um, that they get to take advantage of where typically the incentives and, um, usually go toward the landowners, which may not even live in our state. Um, and so the business owners can take advantage of um, this uh, urban renewal funding basically and bringing the value of their business up and what they can do and save them money um, as providing a, a higher class of service and bringing the value of our district up because then all these businesses throughout town have fiber on their building with the hopes also that we may be able to attract family wage jobs businesses that would say hey we'd love to live in your community um, but we needed the high-speed internet to do whatever we needed it to do and now that's there and it's very cheap and that's not a hindrance for us to move to Sandy and and one of the things that, that you talk about in the video that I don't want to spend time on here because the video covers it very well is that because you owned your own fiber, you were able to uh, give some strands to the Oregon Department of Transportation and allow them to better manage the traffic signals, which then uh, prevents the same number of backups and things like that uh, with so many people traveling, traveling through Sandy. So I will encourage people to, to go uh, watch the video to make sure that they see how that helps the, the quality of life. Um, but I want to, Joe, I want to turn back to you to get back into a little bit more of the, the, the technicals and, and ask you, we still have this issue of you're taking on this task of building a fiber optic network. You're um, building it out to just about everyone. And, um, and you're, you're ultimately end up charging less than Google. I mean, this is an incredible network. Um, but one of the things that, that you've talked about when we've talked in the past is how uh, OFS, a, a, a company that specializes in helping cities in your, in your situation, uh, you know, what they, how they've helped you out. Can you tell us about that? Yeah, so we um, heavily relied upon OFS professional services to design and manage the bulk of the construction efforts on this network. It kind of fell into our lap. I, I called them at the advice of a sales rep just seeking some modeling and some spreadsheets that I, that I had heard that they may have. You know, what, what does it cost on average to pass a home with underground fiber construction versus aerial? Versus, that's, that's the kind of data I was looking for. Um, and what we ended up getting from OFS in, in, in return to that inquiry was a full turnkey 
proposal for a deployed network in our city, which obviously was very interesting to us. And um, you know, through the project, they were just incredibly helpful, had a lot of experience. They've got a lot of former Fios engineers on their team that are very familiar with building fiber optic networks. Um, they've got a, you know, just years of experience doing this and thousands of miles of fiber in the ground um, under their belts. So to have that level of expertise come in and you know, basically walk us through this process was just amazingly helpful. And it, we were very involved in the construction process. I've learned a ton as we went through this. But you know, to come into it without their uh, guidance and expertise would have been a very, very different project. I think that's just important for people to have a sense that you know, people sometimes say, well, how can a city do this? And the answer is, is often you get help from people that have already done it and have a business that specifically helps to build this sort of thing. Um, which leads me to what I think is, a, is an important question, which is, you know, now that you're, it's probably about five or six years now since you actually began even contemplating the fiber to the home network. Um, you know, what, what do you know now that you wish you had known then? <laughs> That's a difficult question um, because, as I, as I said, I have learned a lot. Um, for me, probably the biggest, the biggest thing that I would do differently, maybe if I attack it from that angle, would be um, to realize the impact that this type of construction has on your residents or your constituents, right? We, you know, as we, as we constructed this network, we were pretty much in everyone's yard. And one of the things that I would uh, do differently was way more public outreach and interaction and noticing and just getting the community even more involved. And I think that would have made the process go smoother and it probably would have also yielded in a higher take rate in the end for us. So that, you know, that's one big takeaway I talk about often is engage the community as much as possible. And it's, you know, the more time you spend doing that, I think the better off the project will function and, and work in the end result. And, uh, you know, for us, it was it was the realization that that is time well spent. It's, it sometimes seems like, well, we're not getting the reaction we want to these mailings or, you know, hanging flyers on people's doors is, is really time intensive, but it, the payoff is huge. Um, and then, you know, in addition to that, just lots of little stuff that I've learned about project management, construction management. I was fortunate to have our public works director has been with the city for like 26 years or something. He's managed a lot of public improvement projects with roads and water systems and sewer systems. Um, but having someone, you know, involved in the project that has that level of expertise of how to deal with contractors and how to, you know, manage the issues that come up, uh, that was another huge learning area for me that, you know, about six months into it, I really kind of hit full swing and was like, okay, I've got this figured out now. But that first six months was a massive learning curve to understand, you know, how to deal with things as they came up. And Jeremy, you've been uh, certainly very involved in this. Are there, is there anything that you've learned along the way from the perspective of someone who's overseeing uh, the project as an elected official? Like Joe had mentioned a little bit, you know, um, letting um, our residents know more. You know, Facebook's a funny thing. Um, you know, it can be good or bad. And, and so when people are ripping up people's front yard, you know, in the utility easement, you've got to put the conduit in to make it work. But, you know, getting out there and uh, and jumping on that, I think we did a good job. But I think knowing 
how the public reacts in on these Facebook groups that uh, are neighborhood watch groups and all these other groups and and being part of that. And so you can you can uh, jump on that and actually give them factual information because a lot of the times these groups um, you know hear rumors or it, it's not quite as factual as. It is identifying that early on, knowing that, and being prepared before the project goes. I never even imagined that we'd be involved in these Facebook groups about the construction process, about, hey, they ripped up my yard, and the downside or the bad publicity from that uh, coming from those um, those community Facebook groups. Um, you know, because before Facebook, in those type of groups, people didn't really get to uh, share that amongst you know 10,000 people instantly. And it certainly didn't grow at a level where you know someone might put up a post and in three hours you could have 10 or 15 outraged citizens. It's, you know, it's far faster than I'm sure you can react to in many cases. Right, yeah. So you're just getting that the publicity you know, in there and correct and, and correcting that information I think would be um, something that would help definitely very politically. Uh, the other thing is knowing what we know now going back, the, the amount of money we took out to construct, we were constructing for 35% or 40% take rate um, is what we got financing proof for, but then we ended up getting 60% take rate. Um, and so we were much more successful, which is a good thing, I guess, but that wasn't in the budget to add those extra drops to homes that uh, we were anticipating. And so needing to get additional financing to be able to add the additional drops because we were so popular. It's a good thing to have, but it's also an issue realizing, oh, if we could have uh, figured that out. And I don't know how you would have figured that out ahead of time, because as we went and built along, people started signing up at that point. Something that I've seen, and I wonder if you think this would solve it, was that um, you know if, if a community may expect a project is going to cost $15 million, uh, they may get authorization to borrow $20 million and still issue $15 million in bonds and then being able to come back a couple years later to, to increase the budget if they need to without having to go through the contentious process then of, of securing you know, additional approval. Yeah, and I think that would have been a, a good solution there. So let me ask one final question of each of you, and uh, I think, uh, Joe, I'll come to you first. And that's, you know, if you can tell me one of your favorite stories about how someone that you know or someone in town has been benefited from the network, uh, you know, what kind of a difference it's made in their lives or if they've decided to move to town because of it, just some interesting story about why, um, about how the network has impacted someone. Probably the, the biggest one for me uh, is a personal friend that uh, works in the real estate industry. And he, he, you know, on an average day would go into his office to work and he would work from home before. He was a standing net customer before he had our Wi-Fi. Um, And, you know, it worked well and he would work from home part of the time. But once we upgraded him to fiber, um, he works from home now the majority of the time. So he's at his home office more than he is at his work office. He's got a better connection at his home office than he does at his, you know, official work office, which is in the, you know, middle of the Portland metro area. So to see, um, you know, the impact that that has on a family has been amazing to me to see. Now here's this dad who can stay home with his three children and his wife. And yes, he's working from home, but at least he's there for lunch (laughs) or to, you know, to interact with his kids every couple of hours or whatnot instead of being 
50 minute commute away from his family and not being able to see them from nine to five when he's out of the, out of the house. And we've seen, you know, not, not just from that personal friend, but from all sorts of, of members of the community. I've heard that there have been lots of instances where that's the case. We actually had one customer call us and say, how fast will the fiber be? Because my workplace has thresholds on, you know, what my home internet connection has to be before I'm allowed to remote in. So they, I think their minimum requirement was like they needed a 10 meg connection up and down before they were allowed to work remotely. And, you know, I was able to kind of chuckle and say, well, you'll have 10 times that with our lowest package, so don't worry about it. Um, that's, that's been really nice to me to know that we're providing something to the community that's allowing people to have more flexibility that improves their quality of life. And Jeremy, do you have any uh, stories that, that you'd like to share? We do. We have a, a business that uh, is in Sandy, and I think they have about um, 60 family wage jobs uh, here in Sandy. So they uh, are one of our, a great family business. But with our fiber that we're able to provide them, our gig fiber, they're also doing backups to a um, location in Costa Rica and um, are able to do a real long far off-site backup uh, between the, the two locations. And they really are only able to do that because we are able to provide them the, uh, the bandwidth at a, a really cheap price um, fast enough to be able to do so. And so instead of having them to move their data center down into inner Portland or, or um, other locations where they may be able to find those types of speeds, they're able to do that right out of their office um, right in downtown Sandy. And the interesting thing with that business, too, is the owner of that business is, is native to Costa Rica. So they, they've moved up to America, but having uh, the main reason they wanted that office in Costa Rica is because they travel back and forth a lot, and they obviously have a, a data center and a call center down there as well, and they're providing great jobs in that community as well. Um, so to see the impact that the fiber connection has, not only here, but also enabling that business to do something halfway around the world um, is pretty neat. Great. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show to to tell us more about it and starring in this uh, this great video that I'm I'm just waiting for the Oscar nominations to come in. So, you know, we'll see what happens there. <laughs> thank you, Chris. Absolutely. Yeah. Be sure to send us your ideas for the show. Email us at podcast at muninetworks.org. Follow us on Twitter. Our handle is at Community Nets. Thanks again to BKFM B-Side for their song, Raise Your Hands, licensed through Creative Commons. And thank you again for listening. Music